Circle and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane, your host. I will be joined by Regan DeLoggins, my co-host. Um, we're going to get into a bunch of stuff today. Well, at least we're going to touch a bunch of stuff because one of the things that we have to be wary of is letting the news cycle distract us and only focus our attention on one thing. So I'll get into that and explain what I'm talking about a little bit more as we go forward. Before I do that, let me first again, as always, remind everybody that we are listener-supported radio. We depend on your contributions to the stations that host this radio show. So I'm talking to you, WBAI in New York City, and I'm talking to you, uh, WPFW in Washington, D.C. So I'm asking you, I'm asking you, the listeners, go to your pledge line, uh, we look, we're always at some level, we are always in somewhat of a fun drive mode. So I'm going to ask you this every single week. So let me ask again. Uh, I want you to go to uh, 212-209-2950. That's our pledge line and make a contribution of any size. You can go to the the website. You can go to give to WBAI.org and follow the prompts and make a donation uh, that way. You can be a become a BAI buddy you can do a, a a one time you can you can come back as often as you like and, and make a contribution when when your means allow you to so that's what we're 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 hoping to get from you the listener if you're in uh, in Washington DC then I want you to go to a uh, 202-588-9739 and uh, again make a pledge to this station do it in the name of the show and then uh, you know they kind of give us a little bit of a credit we, you know we we don't get paid, but they give us a credit, uh, so to speak. It justifies this, uh, the, the station having us on. So if you listen to this program and you want us to be on this uh, on this station, then it's uh, it's kind of on you to do do some of the lifting anyway. You can also go online. You can go to wpfwfm.org and uh, and follow the prompts and make a donation of any size. Uh, so that's. I always feel like I've got to do that to open open up the show because we are listener-supported radio. And look, there aren't a whole lot of places that provide a space for uh, for native voices. We, you know, we hear a lot about land back. In fact, if you're watching me on Facebook live stream, I've got my land back shirt on. Um, there's a lot of conversation about land back. And there's a lot of conversation about uh, land acknowledgments. But... You know, land back is about us reclaiming some of our lands. But even in places that we may not necessarily be reclaiming lands, there's no reason that we can't be accommodated with space. So when, when I think about WBAI and WPFW providing Regan and I the space for our conversation so we can offer our perspective on issues that are oftentimes, you know, maybe specifically Native issues, but sometimes they are issues that affect us all, but uh, but a Native perspective is uh, is is something that should be considered. So, so, so that's what I, that's what I've got. Uh, Regan, are you with me yet? I'm here. I, uh, I listened to your whole thing and I, I'm completely supportive. Everyone send us your money <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> yes, by all means. So thank you for that. You know, so, you know, Regan and I were kicking around what we were going to do today and, and look, there is nothing um, that I'm not willing to talk about as far as the residential school issue and the fact that these these discoveries are being made of buried children and 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 that hasn't even been started. Uh, they haven't even begun looking at the schools on the U.S. side. This has all been on the Canadian side, and there's already like 1,500 
grave sites, mass graves, unmarked graves, whatever that they've discovered. And it's and it's horrendous. But, you know, it's news to you. It's not news to Regan and I. We we've known because we're native and we know what these schools have been about. So now it's about because about really producing at some level some irrefutable proof that the this the level of deaths have occurred at these schools. So we are we already knew. So now you're becoming aware of it. And and of course it is does make the news cycle and it's it's been on a lot of the Canadian channels. It's uh, you know New York Times, Washington Post, uh, uh, NPR. There there've been all kinds of um, U.S. media covering this, and of course, it's a little easier going to say, "Yeah, that's out in Canada," uh, mm-hmm. but they haven't even begun on the U.S. side. But, and I got to tell you, I have I have friends of mine, and and I know, although it might be a bit of a minority that are actually saying this, I have friends that are saying this is all just a distraction. This is all being manipulated to be a distraction. Now, I'm gonna I'll back off that a little bit. It's not all a distraction, but it can be. And that's that's my point with what what I'm hoping Regan and I can get into today. It can be a distraction because, look, as they start propping up a new governor general on the Canadian side, a new AFN chief on the Canadian side, uh, Deb Haaland on the uh, on the American side, and and putting all these native faces that are going to you know properly address these issues, it it can be a bit of a concentration on 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 this singular issue, and. I, it's not so much that it's a problem that for me that it's that it's an issue that's in the past because I think it is relevant to today. The issue that I have is if all of our attention goes to addressing these these children that are now being discovered buried in these places, and and we take our eye off of everything else that we're doing. I mean, I get into this all the time, and Regan, you know, I, you've probably heard it too. When somebody says, "I don't know why you guys are fighting the mascot issue. Aren't there more important things to fight about?" We always get this "what aboutism" stuff thrown at us, you know. Well, and, you know, no, go ahead. I find I find it really um, incredibly disrespectful when people. Uh, like, well, they say, oh, it's just a mascot. Oh, it, you know, it's just these things that happened in the past. And what, and it's something that we speak about so openly on this radio show and, um, and also within our own lives, uh, you know, within our own lives, we constantly have these conversations. And something that I want people to understand is that these are all interconnected issues. And I always say interconnectedness, and I always talk about interconnectedness um, on, on a number of different on a number of different levels. But it's really important for folks to understand that these are all related to the larger narrative of of the genocide of indigenous people. Like this, you know, the mascots aren't divorced from. Uh, the conversations about residential schools, you know, just like pipelines aren't divorced from conversations about uh, from from land back. Like these are all interconnected issues that affect us as indigenous people on the everyday. And, you know, when we talk about that's why when we do talk about uh, resource extraction, we also talk about missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, trans and two spirit people because they're interconnected. So for me, it's always so insulting when people are like, oh, can't you put your effort into something else or look into the future? Even even within community, sometimes people uh, advocate that we look more toward the future generations and advocate for the future and the past is the past. And a lot of that is based in trauma and survival that we ignore things that have happened in the past in hopes that we don't have to unpack how detrimental they are to our present lives. But the reality is that all of these conversations are interconnected. When we talk about one thing, we're talking about all things. And and they're directly connected. I mean, they're interconnected, yes. But there is a direct connection between 
pipelines, man camps, and, and missing and murdered indigenous women. There is a direct connection even between mascots. The idea of fetishizing na native imagery and native mm -hmm. images and fetishizing native people and missing and murdered indigenous women. There's a direct connection between white kids playing Indian in these in their schools while native kids were being abused to the point of death in these prison camps called schools. I mean, there's a, I mean, even if it's 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 a if it's a dichotomy or if it's a a hypocrisy, the connection is still there. So you're you're absolutely right. I, we can't talk about almost any singular issue. Poverty. You can't talk about poverty on native territory and not realize how much that contributes to everything. You know, whether it's you know uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, whether it's uh, suicide, whether it's teen pregnancy, whether it's uh, you know the do dropout rate, the depression issues, all you know, all of it. It's so connected. The the exodus from our territories. You know, it's it's funny because when I when I told Regan that what I'd like to discuss is you know kind of the the challenges that are in front of us now so so we don't lose sight of them even as we're addressing you know this residential school issue and and i and i'm not suggesting that the residential school issue is only a distraction but my point is if we let you know some of these people champion this issue while we're still living in abject poverty I, I ran down a done a quick list i'm gonna just run through the list just so you get so you can get a sense for for what is what's in front of, of folks like regan and i as as we're addressing frankly our daily lives we're, we're talking Absolutely. about and environmental issues you know pipelines standing rock comes to mind we've got land back we've got land claims issues we've got jurisdictional battles we have the issue over travel documents and passports citizenship which is an underlying issue that that is directly connected to the residential schools because that's what they were trying to do assimilate us and yet we still ended it end up in this in this strange place taxation native commerce we're in a constant battle with states and the federal government just trying to eke out some level of economic development in our territories native to Native commerce, um, the mascot issue, the um, buried history, the fact that there's so much history that people simply aren't aware of, the kind of things that kind of things that Regan and I talk about all the time. Oftentimes we hear back from people say, geez, I never knew that. Well, there's a reason you never knew it. Then there's mm -hmm. the false narratives, the way that, that things are taught in school. I, 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 if you open up a history book today for uh, for some uh, for a grade schooler it still tells that story of pocahontas somehow placing her head down be beside john smith's head to keep him from being executed by his you know by her her grandfather's uh, people and and that is i mean it's an absolute lie and and yet that is still being taught in school. So all of these false narratives, Christopher Columbus. I mean, all of that is still being uh, being taught that way. And, you know, and we got to get into healthcare. We we, and I know there's been a, a fair amount of attention, specifically because of Navajo territory, because of the sheer volume of the of that that place. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, look, people of color have been. It's been highlighted that that we have died. Uh, at a higher rate than anybody else when it comes to COVID-19. Well, that's absolutely been the case, not just in Navajo territory. I'm, I'm living up here in Seneca territory. If you run the numbers here, 
They they probably may even be a little worse statistically and um, pr proportionately uh, to the Navajo numbers, but nobody's going to talk about that. Um, when we t we can't talk about health care if you're not going to talk about the fact that we have a a clean running water problem on so many of our territories. We have we have substandard housing. We have, mm -hmm. and I hate to hate to say this because it, it, it almost sounds minor compared to everything else. Internet. I mean, I'm literally talking to you guys because I had to go out and buy a, a Verizon jetpack because I don't have internet here on, we're, we're literally 28 miles from, from the city of Buffalo and we don't have high speed internet here. I mean, yeah. that's the kind of things that, that we are faced with. You know, and Regan and I talked about the Cabell suit, you know, just the absolute screwing that native people took on the settlement of uh, Eloise Cabell's suit against the Department of Interior and the uh, and the Treasury Department. Look, and, and, I would be, and I would be absolutely be remiss if again, I didn't bring it up this week, that we are in the anniversary of um, the Gunnasadaga, otherwise known as the Oka crisis, where, again, we're talking about 1990. We're not talking about 1890. In 1990, the Canadian military, and I mean with with Tomcat jets flying overhead, I, they had they had their navy vessels in the river. I mean, because Gunnasadage is is in an area where the, there's a confluence of the St. Lawrence and it opens up into a, a large waterway. They brought in they brought they brought in troops. They brought in the military against the Mohawk Nation at Gunnasadage and Gunnawage. That's that's not just in our lifetime. I mean, I was I was a part of this to some extent, and I'm not trying to say this to be heroic or, or sound uh, like I'm trying to get cred for this, but this was something that I was part of being engaged with at, at the time. And so we're not talking about ancient history. Uh, you know, just like mm -hmm. we're not talking about ancient history when, when we say 10,000 people showed up at Standing Rock to try to stop what was militarized police from assisting with putting a, a pipeline through. So when we talk about these are the things we're fighting today. And so as much as we want to hold the churches and not just the Catholic church, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stick up for the Catholic church by any means, but there's a, there's, there, there continuously seems to be an emphasis that this was all the Catholic church. The Catholic church represented about 50% of the, uh, the churches running these, these residential schools, just so you know. The other 50% were the other denominations. So. But I want the churches to be held accountable. I want staff people to help be held accountable. I want, frankly, I want some of our people held accountable for those residential schools because we had some level of complicity in those things as far as leadership goes, understanding that that leadership was very much under the thumb of the federal government. But as much as I want to do all of that, I don't want to take uh, take our eyes off the things that, that are in front of us right now that not only affect our lives today, but as you mentioned earlier, Regan, are clearly going to impact the future. If we don't address some of these issues today, our future looks pretty, uh, pretty bleak. And like, I, and I understand, I, you know, I understand the point that you're making, especially because so much is happening right now in this moment in terms of exercising indigenous self-determination and exercising indigenous sovereignty and, and, I I understand the want to focus on these these issues that are happening in the now and not looking to the past. But you know, I come I I see it a bit differently, which is, you know, why I was pretty excited to have this conversation with you on the air is, you know, I of course, I want energy put in toward things that relate to the future. I want energy put towards uh, towards things that are happening right now. I want people to show up to the front lines against these pipelines. 
um, not just indigenous people, but accomplices of, of all of all communities to come and show up. But I also think it's incredibly important that we put time and effort into residential schools because of how impactful they were to our communities. You know, like as we had talked about in previous uh, previous conversations we've had on the radio, I don't know anyone in my community that wasn't affected by a residential school. Everyone I know had a familial member in a residential school. You know, it it, it was so impactful to to our indigeneity, indigeneity contemporarily that I understand why it's why people are putting a lot of energy and effort into you know holding these churches accountable, holding the federal government accountable, and uh, and wanting you know I guess answers um, or even just primary source documentation to to try to name some of the people within these graves and and provide them you know some some holistic care but the reason i think it's so important that we put time and effort and energy into unpacking what is happening with these um, residential schools and finding that these mass graves is because we cannot heal we cannot be in the future carrying the trauma of the past and this is one aspect one leg of that journey that we can deal with right now, as these graves are being unearthed, as these, um, as you know, and as we've talked about previously as well, this will continue. This is just what's happening in First Nations territory right now in so-called Canada, and we already know that the intention is to start doing that work here in the U.S. with Deb Holland's, um, uh, of course, I forgot the name, but Deb Holland's group that is going to begin this investigative work here on the U.S. The side for Department, basically, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But, the, but so we know that this work is going to start happening now and it's going to be reliving of so much trauma. It's going to be incredibly violent. It's going to be so painful for many of us to navigate. And it also will uh, perpetuate a lot of the issues that we already see in community. You know, we might see more people turning to substance abuse and turning to violence and turning to these things as things come out, because it's 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 a it's a response to ongoing trauma. So I think it's really important, actually, that we put in the time to hold these institutions accountable, especially the federal government and the church, because there is a legacy. There is a historical legacy of the state and the church oppressing indigenous people. They have worked together from a number of different perspectives, not just from the, you know, English colonial perspective, but also the Spanish colonial perspective, the French colonial perspective. You know, every every part of the colonial history of the narratives that we so often learn participated in the egregious acts of residential schools or the encomienda system or the mission systems. So I think it's incredibly important actually for us to navigate this trauma now rather than to, and yes, I, I, I understand also, you know, that this is the media runs on hot, hot button issues, hot topics. And right now residential schools are that trending topic on Twitter, on Instagram, it's, it's all over the news. You know, it's definitely something that's that's getting a lot of attention. And my fear is that the attention will stop and then there will be a lack of accountability. So I think we can have it all. And I think we need to have it all. I think we need to have people fighting against pipelines on the front lines. I think we need people who are holding churches and, and the federal government accountable for residential schools. I think we need people who are continuing to, to discuss and push back and, and um and challenge the issues that we see within within the legal system in terms of land. I think that we can have it all. And I also know that it's incredibly exhausting to think that we can have it all. Um, and I know that's a bit of an optimistic view to be like, we can do this all as as people, as community members. So, you know, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing uh, to 
to want people to be invested, but also for people not to lose sight of the larger goal. And the larger goal is the destruction of settler colonialism. That is our intention well, and, and I, always. I think it's really important, and, and you, you touched on, on a bunch of this stuff, but I, I think it's really important that we that we utilize the uh, the attention that residential schools are getting, and, and, and especially what the goal of those residential schools were. I mean, I think it's important that we use that so we can address some of these other issues. Because, look, at the end of the day, they were trying to to uh, erase us. In, in whether you want to attribute every one of those deaths to erasure, and I think that's a reasonable assumption to make. But certainly the goal was, even for the survivors of residential schools, that we would no longer exist as those people anymore. So... When, if I'm going to talk about the passport issue, which is, for those who don't understand, there is a, uh, there's, uh, we, we have a big fight every time we try to travel internationally because the United States or Canada insist that we travel on a U.S. or Canadian passport. Now, the problem is you can't travel on those passports without declaring citizenship to those uh, to those nations. I mean, it, it wasn't always this way. You, you actually, there was a time that, that the United States would avail a passport to somebody who was perhaps a national, you know, so to speak. Um, so th there's probably some, some massage room in there to where if I wanted to travel to, you know, to, to Europe, for instance, that I would not necessarily need to have a, a Mohawk passport or a Haudenosaunee passport. But if I did travel with the U.S. passport, it would not have required me to, to declare citizenship to the United States. And, because, and the reason that I bring this up in, in respect to the residential schools, if we totally cave in and say, all right, you win, we're, we're yours now, then what we're saying is your residential schools worked. What we're saying is your assimilation programs, which essentially are genocide, you guys won. That your genocide is complete, that we are no longer the distinct, autonomous, sovereign people that we once were. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna now revel in that. And, and I, that's something that I refuse to do. That's why jurisdictional battles and all these other things, this really comes down to maintaining a level of distinction, which was what the residential schools were exactly intended to end it was intended to end our distinction whether we died or whether we just came out the other side you know somebody who 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 hated you know the the native identity and that was part of the plan part of the whole plan was not just to convert us not just to show us a better way to live but first to teach us to hate who we were yeah, and there was a large part of shame. There's a lot of shame. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that was part of that was part of assimilation, and is still used today. Well, and 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 the same mentality that went into the the creation of these residential schools was behind Canada believing they could bring the the SQ, then the RCMP, and then ultimately the Canadian military in against the Mohawk people. I mean, there's there's a there's a thread there. These none of these things are unrelated, and, and which it goes back to you, your earliest point. They are not only interconnected, sometimes indirectly, but many of these things have a direct connection to the mindset that still exists today. I mean, look, if you ask any U.S. politician at the state level or the federal level, there's not a single one of them will, that will acknowledge that our citizenship to our own nations 
is somehow uh, paramount over what they they're they're regarding as us as us citizens or canadian citizens that's that's the bottom line and in fact yes. to the extent that they'll use words like nations whether it's first nations in canada or whether they use the word nation in the, you know seneca nation or oneida nation or whatever else the fact that they'll throw that in there they aren't really recognizing that citizenship I mean, in order for the United States to recognize the fact that we are citizens of our respective nations, and I'm, and those are still even touchy words for me, but if, if, they would have to recognize that we have rights as those citizens, like pr- producing our own travel documents, you know, creating our own revenue uh, streams and, and economic development in our territories, perhaps, you know, you know, n- not being subject to um, state and federal income tax and that kind of thing, because we have our own nations to you know to fund and create revenue for. So we know that uh, that the United States and Canada, even as they cry their crocodile tears over residential schools, they they are very quietly applauding the the effectiveness of it, and we can't let them have that. Of course. How could they? How could they not? How could they not also applaud the effectiveness of it? It's part of the entire system. I think that that is, you know, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because, I, you know, I keep seeing these tweets that Justin Trudeau is putting out and like other members of Canadian, um, the Canadian federal government talking about like how pained they are and that like what a horrible part of Canadian history this was without actually recognizing the fact that A, everyone knew about this. This was not new or, or, or this has... You know, the the last residential school closed in 1996 in so-called Canada. So, like, this is contemporary history. This is modern history. This isn't, as you said, you know, 1890. Of course, it was happening then, too. But it happened up until 1996. So, so that blows my mind in the first place. Is that we're to, the 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 tweets, particularly coming out of Canadian federal officials who are and politicians who are just you know in shock and in in you know mourning and grieving when they in their lifetime these residential schools were open. So, so that already to me, I love the term crocodile tears. We know this isn't real. We know that they're they are not mourning with us or for us. They, it is all part of a ploy. It's all about a political careers and it's all about placating, placating the general public and to maintain and to calm people so that there aren't the continuations of burning of churches, which, by the way, I think is fantastic. And I love the work that's being done by whoever is doing that. But, you know, I truly don't understand why people uh, why I just find it angering. I really, truly find it so angering to see. Canadian politicians and even American politicians, you know, participating in this like, oh, we are so we are in grief. We are in sorrow. We are mourning. You are not. You are not part. Uh, you. The only part you had in this was perpetuating this violence against our community. And I wish that there was more accountability rather than, uh, as you said, crocodile tears. No, and, and, but I want to make one distinction here because I don't want anybody equating the fact that that some native people have have gone and taken these churches to task by burning these churches i don't want that compared to some of the bombings of churches in the south by the kkk or any oh of, that of stuff. course we, that's not even uh, the well, same i i know but but i can immediately think how somebody might might interpret this look the institution is what the, is what we are fighting back against that those churches are we aren't talking about you know a a 
some you know a, a black church with a black preacher that we that we hate so we're going to destroy you know and 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 kill some people no this is not anything like that so i don't want anybody to think even as you and i will not only will not condemn the burnings of some of these churches look uh, i'll be the first one when i see one of these things posted on twitter or like or on uh, facebook I, I immediately like and add my comment because I think it's high time that these churches were run off of our territories because of what they what they represented. The only thing I wanted to mention, Absolutely. you mentioned Justin Justin Trudeau. I have to remind people that his father said some of the most racist, you know, comments about Native people of any of the the prime ministers of Canada. So Pierre Pierre Trudeau, he actually was quoted as saying, "Look, if you don't." speak your language anymore because we we ran you all through residential schools if you don't speak your language you don't practice your ceremonies anymore then you don't deserve any native rights because you, uh, you've been completely assimilated the the gall of this guy to say that and and that his commentary you can look it up that commentary has been published over and over and over again and i've never heard justin trudeau address the words of his father and and, and the fact of the matter is that those comments could not be more clear an indication. I mean, I've ta we've talked about genocide, right? And the word in, in, uh, in the definition of genocide that sometimes people get hung up on is, is intent. If you commit these crimes against the people with the intent to destroy them in whole or in part. And, you know, these guys say it every single... Uh, American politicians, the Canadian politicians have been, have been announcing the intent to destroy our people since they since they got here since they got here i mean that's the, i i recently did a lecture um uh uh on settler colonialism and on the history of settler colonialism and i started the lecture by asking um the people the, the, the audience members the, let's just call them students to ask the students what is the difference between like colonialism and settler colonialism and what is what is settler colonialism and having people you know like uh re recite Wikipedia definitions of settler colonialism, or even their own definitions of settler colonialism, and really trying to unpack what that what that looks like and what it boils down to. And what people I don't think understand is that the intention from contact, the colonial intention of those who came here was to settle. And the intention was to take land. And it wasn't as if they didn't know indigenous people existed here already. That's already that that is already an ahistorical narrative. So the intention was to come here and to take land. And in order to take land, you have to remove the people who are already on the land, which is exactly what settler colonialism is. It's the intention to remove the indigenous population in order to create a new population for and end with the intention of doing continuous resource extraction. That is settler colonialism. We live in a settler colonial nation. We do not live in a post-colonial society. Settlers still live on our land, which means that this is contemporary, this is right now in this moment, a, a colony. This is what that is. We live in a colony. We live in occupied lands. And so I find that when we when we talk about this and, and when it's not discussed in the classroom, I, I find that often people don't understand that the first people who came here, the first settlers who came here had the intention to remove indigenous populations, had the intention to take land from us. This is, it's, it's, it's the, it's the legacy of the U.S. And it's still, and it's still, I mean, look, any attempt to, to municipalize native governance, governance is essentially 
a seizure of sorts. I mean, and I've heard people describe tribal government as a system of, uh, as part of the system of federalism. Somehow, like native governments fit some somewhere between, you know, maybe village or or county government and state government. And it's like we're we're nestled in that system on the U.S. side, or and it, and it's even more clear on the Canadian side. Band councils, as they're as they've been constructed, are literally tied to the Canadian system of federalism. And that, via governing, is a seizure of our land. So this is still going on. Look, they may not be outright taxing us for property, but we have to battle over income tax. I mean, think about this. I mean, I, I still think this is such an absurd proposition. Imagine being, and, and I've got a friend who's, who sits on Seneca Council. Imagine being elected onto the Seneca Nation Council, and they have an elected system. And with that, it, it, it um, involves it being a job. And so he is Seneca, living on Seneca territory, working for the Seneca Nation, and over 25% of his pay has to go to the federal government. I mean, how the hell does that make any sense? And and this is what is, is you know, it, it's replicated over and over and over again, even as some of us are trying to fight you know, the, the requirement which has no foundation in law. I mean, look, we always come down to this whole thing. Where's the consent? At what point did Native people consent to subjugation under the U.S. or Canadian uh, law? Never. And, and we have never exist, consented. We have and never that, And that's consented. exactly the point. In spite of the fact that, we, that our children being ripped from our homes, that they were being beaten malnourished miss you know they, they were you look know, they were they died at the hands of government funded church run schools they and look we lost lives i mean i I'm, it's my guess that the number will be over 6000 on the canadian side alone as far as these these unmarked graves and and that's the it's unmarked more. graves uh, yeah, if not more. more, I say at least that it's going to be over that. And on the U.S. side, it's probably going to be higher than that. And yep. so, I mean, when you think these are the children who physically died, and we know every child died some. Every every child had a part of their identity murdered because that's what the what the the. And and yet here we are. We are still trying to fight fight back we're fighting back for land we're fighting back for resources we're fighting back for you know autonomy and distinction and and we have a history of all of this this stuff that is that is you know includes residential schools and and i'm glad residential schools is getting the attention but let's not forget they're paying bounties for our scalps including the scalps of our women and our children they were our children were being mutilated on on the frontier as uh, as you know, as U.S. soldiers were were murdering our people, and and I don't want pe- anybody to forget for a second that that was part that it's all overlapped, it's all connected, and it brings us back to to even some of the death by cop stuff we still uh, still see today. Uh, and you know, look, we know that a lot of the uh, um, the unarmed uh, black people who have been killed by police is makes a lot of news. We're a much smaller population, but if you run the numbers, Native people die at a rate higher than, than anybody else in the U.S. and Canada in, in, a, in death by cop situations. We also can't, you know, we also can't ignore um, how often those, that data intersects as well in terms of vi- police violence against Afro-Indigenous people, because that is... That is often a statistic that is not discussed. 
with uh, and and that is also a reality for a number of a number of our community members who are targeted by the police are both uh, are both black and indigenous uh, and and the amount of erasure that exists in terms of identity is also an incredibly important part of this conversation but i do i do want to i do want to point out something that that really um that you that you just triggered and when you were saying that you know american or us soldiers are were and are um killing you know killing killing our populations killing our people uh especially during the westward expansion uh era in the in the late 1800s well i guess early 1800s to the late 1800s um and and it really reminded me that when we're talking about interconnectedness we can't ignore the fact that the u you know the u.s military um industrial complex and the u.s military is one of the most violent um most violent uh uh, groups, you know, if you will, I, I would I would argue that the U.S. military is part of all of these issues. Specifically, considering how uh, how many indigenous people have been murdered outside um, of the U.S. through you know arguments of diplomacy or trying to bring democracy to other places. I can't. I, we cannot ignore the fact that the U.S. is an is an empire. It's an imperial nation. Uh, it has purposefully and violently killed indigenous Filipinx populations through, you know, through the Spanish-American War and the continued occupation. We can't ignore that Guam is a colony of the U.S. and that uh, is the largest, the, the U.S. military is the largest pollutant of indigenous land in Guam. We can't ignore the fact that the U.S. has participated um, in a number of coups to usurp indigenous sovereignty, specifically in places like Guatemala in 1952. You know, we can't ignore the fact that U.S. soldiers participate in training um, in Israel to particularly destroy Palestinian indigenous populations. Like you, the U.S. military, the U.S. soldiers are a part of this empire of violence. Who have participated in in the the continued uh, uh, genocide of indigenous populations, not just here on our own land, not just here in Turtle Island, but all over the global South, as well as Puerto Rico, in, Hawaii. Yeah, Puerto let's not. Rico. I mean, let's, I, mean let, I mean, when you think about how much the military has contaminated some some of these beautiful places in in Hawaii and in Puerto Rico, I mean, it, it is just. I mean, it it's it's depravity. I mean, it it really is amazing that that anybody thinks that, that this is okay. But you know, as you were listing blew. all of those countries in the South Pacific, let's don't let's not leave out Hawaii. I mean, Hawaii was how can we? I mean, it was vict it was victimized in, in uh, even before. I mean, uh, you know, some of these uh, these other places. I mean, and and it was all part of that same U.S. imperialism. Yeah, I mean, Hawaii is an excellent example of imperial might. The U.S. literally overthrew a monarch, a sovereign indigenous monarch, in order to invade Hawaii to create a state. And why? For access. For access, because Hawaii is a, an access point for the military, specifically the Air Force and the Navy, as well as because of um, Dole, uh, the produce Francis company. Francis Dole, yep. Yeah, yep. had a huge part. Uh, in lobbying U.S. government in order to uh, in over in order to overthrow the the sovereign monarch of Hawaii and and I think it's important that people realize that the that that monarchy um, the the kingdom of Hawaii was recognized internationally they were the only non-European colony 
that was recognized and uh, you know by the by the European you know international community essentially um, as as a sovereign nation. I mean, it, it, I'm a little uncomfortable sometimes. What, what Hawaii calls their Independence Day was the day that the international community, mainly Europe, uh, the European nations, um, recognized Hawaii as as a sovereign state. I mean, they obviously were before that, and that's where I get a little troubled by it. But but. And this is the crazy part. And this is where, you know, you got to hold so many others accountable too. Where was the rest of the world? There were actually embassies in nations all over the world, Hawaiian embassies, and not a single one of those other nations spoke up as the United States, uh, not only did their illegal coup, but even the annexation was done unlawfully according to US law. There was no annexation yeah. treaty. It wasn't passed by two thirds of the Senate. It was it was a debacle and the people who were even doing it, there was a congressman from from Texas who once said, so we're gonna try to annex a, uh, you know, a sovereign nation through a, a joint resolution of Congress, knowing that it's illegal. We're gonna, we're gonna do this unlawful act I mean, and this was a congressman from Texas who, who who was acknowledging this, and yet that's what they did. It's it was an illegal occupation. It was it there was no, it, it was a seizure. It wasn't an annexation. And, and I think it was an invasion. It was an invasion. Yep. It was yep. an invasion. And we cannot ignore the fact that um, that the the last queen regent of uh, the Kingdom of Hawaii was Queen Lilikulalani, uh, an indigenous woman. Uh, who was overthrown, uh, like we cannot ignore the fact that this is also a, a destruction of indigenous sovereignty uh, and a destruction of, of, of a way of life and that the person who was targeted was an indigenous woman. We cannot ignore that. That is also part of this interconnected narrative. And for those who are unaware, there's a lot of conversation happening right now about Hawaii, um, specifically in relation to a lot of tourists going to Hawaii and uh, and wreak, like wreaking havoc not only to the to the economies that exist but also to the natural world as well Ecology, as bringing yeah. covid we can't ignore that we still live in a global pandemic no matter how many how no matter how much we want to pretend that it's over which it is not and of course the populations that are still being the most adversely affected are black and indigenous populations so we cannot ignore that that's happening but i really do i, I think that that's something that we should unpack uh, and maybe in another episode later on down the line is really what's going on in Hawaii right now, because it is still part, you know, there, there is still so much happening in terms of the U.S. occupation of Hawaii. You might see Hawaii as a state in the same way that you see Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, New York as states. And the reality is that these are all indigenous lands. These were all, all of these, these ideas of statehood were, were violent, were violent invasions. You know, and so I, I really think that that is a, an excellent case study to talk about the growth of U.S. imperialism is the, is the kingdom of Hawaii. I want to talk about something that that's related to this, and in fact, it's it's related to, to you specifically, and that's the idea that because of what has happened to uh, indigenous spaces, to the spaces, to to our territories, and 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 I include Hawaii in this. They have been they have been rendered unlivable for much of our population. You know, mm -hmm. Hawaii is a little bit different because it's not that the place has been degraded to where it's unlivable, but because of the military and tourism, 
most native Hawaiians have been priced out of being able to live in their in their home. Yeah. I think 70 percent of the of the of native Hawaiian people live on the continent. And where do they end up? They end up living in in urban environments. I I think about native people. The fact that the abject poverty that exists on our territories has driven over 70 percent of our population to seek lives and livings and you know and and homes in in places that are not you know considered native territories uh, you know defined native territories so when i think about indigenous people native people being driven into these urban environments that's another one of those things that it, that's that's it's related we can tie it right back to residential schools right we can the destruction of home and family and all that other stuff but then the lack of resources you know that that exists for native people when they they do find themselves the homeless population i mean i, I remember traveling to winnipeg in in particular and the you know the bulk of the the homeless population in Winnipeg as in uh, and in Hawaii are um, are indigenous people and mm-hmm. yet there's so very little that is that is made or or done to solve the problem that was created by colonial uh, colonialism in the first place. You know I I when it comes to specifically indigenous people leaving our lands or our communities to go into urban spaces. For me, that's a difficult conversation, not not because it's not real, but also because I, I firmly believe, you know, be, that indigenous people have always existed in cities and we've always existed in, in, um, in urban environments. Of course, not in the way that we see them now, which is so defined by global capitalism and, you know, destruction of land. So mind you, it's not the same kind of city that we see, but you know, I, I firmly I firmly believe that indigenous people have always existed in, in, in our cities in the way that we have defined cities. And and it's important that urban indigenous voices are heard because, as you said, you know, there is we, we often we move to these cities. And why do we move there? Because we're because we're forced off of our lands for a number of reasons, whether it's because there's a lot of queer phobia or maybe because there isn't the, the opportunity that we want. Or maybe we're trying to escape all of the issues that exist, including addiction and abuse and, you know, et cetera. And the number the number of, of the milieu of of issues that exist on our lands. But then I also can't ignore the fact that those same issues still exist in urban environments. You know, like exactly. I still live in poverty here in in New York City. You know, I still see indigenous people, which a reminder, you know, there are over 100,000 indigenous people here within New York City. And also the amount of erasure that exists of indigenous narratives here in in like in Manahata, in Lenape Hoking, in New York City. You know, there's so much more going on, you know, and a lot of indigenous people who are un, who are unaccounted for are undocumented folks from the global south who have come into cities looking for work and how do they receive uh, how do they receive resources they don't you know the federal government purposefully removes them from those kinds of from programs from covid relief from a number of things so it's not like we leave our homes to come to cities and then therefore we find you know prosperity in fact all of this because of interconnected issues because of intergenerational trauma and because we still live on a colonial society that's run by capitalism we come to cities and we have the same issues you know we still have unsheltered kin we still have issues with of, of addiction and abuse we still have a number it, it, it they, we don't escape it just from moving from one place to another no and what i would actually argue in many ways you become more deprived because many of the services that might exist on a native territory are no longer available to you and i mean that's because, a great point 
and in the lack of funding to any uh, any degree for urban centers i mean new york new york has always been in the most dire situation in spite of the population there i mean I, they've had the american indian community house that has always been that's always struggled it's it struggled you know internally always. but it's also struggled with funding and you know and there are places that have had you know better models for uh, native urban centers but new york has been been terrible for that i mean i think baltimore has a better example than than certainly new york city does and you know i think one of the reasons that it has been so difficult to really have like an indigenous like a uh, you know presence or stronghold within the city is because we live in the epicenter of global capitalism. New York City functions off of the mythos of, an, of a city of immigrants. You know, New York City functions off of this idea that we're here to uphold capitalism by any means necessary. The whole reason people come to New York is part of living the hustle. I'm part of the hustle. I hate that term, by the way. It's so grotesque. Um, but, you know, and I even participated in that idea. I was like, I'm here to go to school and to work and I'm part of the New York hustle. You know, I'm hustling. And the re first of all, that's appropriative language. People should not be using that. But second <laughs> yeah. of all, especially if you're if, if you are non-black, that's not language for you to be using. So that's one. Two, why would I take pride in the fact that I can't live in this city? I am here participating in in being I'm putting myself in a lot of poor situations because I want to live in this city as an indigenous person because I believe that it's important that there is an indigenous stronghold here in the epicenter of global capitalism. But I think the fact that a lot of places may maybe fail or are, are less successful in terms of indigenous community space is because we're not meant to survive here. We, we are often so it's an uphill battle, which for me makes it worth the challenge. I love a challenge. You know, I think it's important that we stake our claim as accomplices to Lenape people and hold this space and, and take this space because it is our duty as indigenous people to advocate for one another. But I also understand that like, this is a hard city to live in. There is so much happening specifically so that indigenous people do not thrive. And there's so much erasure. There's so much erasure. People are completely unaware that Lenape people still exist on their lands, that Taino and Arawak people still exist here. Uh, that other indigenous people exist here, that immigrant indigenous communities exist here. There's so there's so much erasure in terms of the, the, the demographics of what New York City is that sometimes it feels like an, a, an, a continue like I'm pushing a boulder up a hill, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's it's got to be in, incredible uh, to to try to make it all work. And and knowing that you know, there, you know, as as inadequate as they may be back on, on native territories, there are some levels of safety net that that are there for you. But but th most of that doesn't exist for specifically for native people, and and so you do you you lose even that sense of um, of community and camaraderie. Even with a hundred thousand people in in New York City, it is oftentimes very very difficult. Even when they have like the the, the powwow over there on um, uh, on Randalls. On Randall's, yeah, it you know look, it is hard to see, to even see that much of a gathering of native people. I mean, it's it, it's tough. I mean, and, and you know look, we've been doing a show 
you know, I've been doing a show on WBAI for, for a number of years. Uh, we've done this one together for, for a while. Shawnee was a part of But I'll tell you, it was oftentimes very, very difficult. Uh, even having a relationship w- between us and the American Indian Community House was difficult. The, you know, to even get that relationship so where we could use this platform to, to advance, even if it was just coming events and that kind of stuff. It's, it's been very, very tough. And, and I see this in many urban environments. And, and, and I understand that, that our population could not sustain itself on native territories alone. I mean, and, and and not that because our population is that huge. It's just that the resources on our territories are so small. I think that the I think what this boils down to in terms of this entire conversation is a lack of resources to indigenous people, no matter where we are, whether we are on our lands, whether we're on the lands that we were removed to, whether we are on other people's lands, whether we're in cities, whether we're in rural spaces. Honestly, no matter where we are, there's a lack of resources because it, that that is intentional. It's still a part of the genocidal narrative, especially if we're talking about federally federally provided resources. We don't. Get, I mean, the perfect example is that at the height of COVID, indigenous nations received body bags before they received PPE. Like there is yep. no intention to provide us with resources, and that's why you know I. I Personally, and I know you do, John, as well, but we advocate so much for the for, for indigenous sovereignty to be exercised through means outside of capitalism and colonialism, outside of federal aid, really focusing on mutual aid, focusing on community empowerment, because the, the most important thing that I think, what you know, kind of connecting everything that we've been talking about is focusing on this idea of a future. Focusing on an idea of a future, what, what does it look like for indigenous people in the future? And I don't want their lives, I don't want you know the next generations after me to have to have the life that I am having. Not to say that everything is completely horrible. I, I, I love my community and I love my But we're working towards something. That's the whole point, but you're we working need, towards exactly. something. And, and, and the most important thing for us to work toward is breaking dependency on the settler state breaking dependency on modes of settler of settler colonialism like capitalism. It is imperative for us as indigenous people and those who are our accomplices to work toward the ending this, ending these systems so that we have the ability to thrive by our own definitions of thrivance and no longer having to work or to live our lives through scarcity of resources. Because the reality is that there isn't a scarcity of resources. They're just being withheld from specifically black and indigenous people. Well, and I, and I go back to the residential school issue again, and, and that's why I think it's important to utilize the attention that this may gather to mm-hmm. say, look, so what's the solution? I mean, because people are going to talk about things like reparations and, you know, reconciliation payments and stuff like that. But the, the long term solution is just recognize our distinction, recognize our sovereignty. I mean, don't admit that that's what you are going after destruction of us as distinct people with these schools if you can admit that then admit that it was wrong and that you're that you're willing to 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 change look even as we fight for things you know my my friend uh, up here in Seneca territory he's been battling New York state because he he was transporting tobacco native tobacco products from Seneca territory to Mohawk territory and had a truck seized. And not only did they seize it and hold up the driver for for you know hours, but they took the product which was you know, which was by itself you know several hundred thousand dollars. But then they fined him several million dollars in penalties on top of that. He's been going through a court battle for years over this. And just today his case was thrown out 
on a technicality. They, they threw it out because, well, they didn't have a right to search the truck. So we yeah. don't win a victory in, in, in any kinds of pr- a precedent, even when we win. We, we, we may have gotten a court to, to agree that what's happened here is egregious. So we have to give them their own little back door that they can slip out of. So, but we, we still fight the state every single day. And there's, yeah. n- there's nothing that's going to stop this from happening again, other than you know, maybe they'll take a few more hours to get a, get a search warrant before they do something like that. But, but, and, and I guess the reason I bring this up is because these are the long-term battles that we have. And even as we look backwards, we should we should look, use um, the attention that it's getting to fix the problems in front of us today. Absolutely. Regan, thank you so much for this program and for having this conversation with me. I hope those of you who are listening and, and understand where we're coming from on this thing. Um, I'm not condemning the attention this uh, the residential schools is getting, but I think we have to make sure we don't get distracted. I'm John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. This is Resistance Radio. Thanks for listening. Yahweh.